Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a wonderful supporter of the show to keep it on the air. And be sure to go to my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com if you want to get the PDF, the writings of a talk that I gave recently at the International Cultic Studies Association conference. So many people... When they get involved in groups, when they get involved, especially in psychotherapy kind of cultic groups, they are very often told that they shouldn't say no any longer, that saying no is the thing getting in the way of their life, of opportunities, and they have to be in a yes mode, a permanent yes mode, being willing to say yes to anything. The work that I do, though, I deal with the opposite. I deal with the fact that people often say yes when they meant no, or they really wanted to say no, or they knew it would be best and safest for them to say no, but they felt like they couldn't and they had to say yes. And so there are so many reasons, usually driven by fear, that we agree to do things or to put up with things and tolerate things, go along with things, when we really didn't want to, when we really didn't feel like we should or feel like it was the right decision. So feel free to pick up the writing that I put together along with that talk if you are interested. And so for today, we have a special guest someone who you will hear from on the podcast and also who is going to be doing a special bonus episode for the Patreon supporters. We have M. Thomas. She was born and raised in the dogmatic Christian cult The Way International, the daughter of a Way Corps graduate and WOW ambassador. M. attended a fellowship in her home three nights per week monthly branch meetings with other leadership families, and prolonged stays semi-annually at the Way International Headquarters. M's family was labeled Mark and Avoid, which is basically their term for being excommunicated, in 1998, after which they attended fellowship within a splinter group until 2000 when M was 15 years old. M has two main goals for sharing her story, to connect with other survivors of cultic abuse, especially second or third generation survivors of The Way International, and to bring attention to this once well-known organization that is still operating and doing harm to its members today. She hopes that by telling her truth, she can bring hope to folks who are still finding their way out. M can be found on Instagram at Mark and Avoid, and via email at IamMarkandAvoid at gmail.com. Here is M now. It is really, really wonderful to have M with me, and I'm so excited to be able to have a conversation with you that I know will be wonderful 
And I'm excited already for the part two of it, because I know there's going to be so much to talk about today alone. So please take a moment if you can and introduce yourself to the listeners. I am really excited to be here. Uh, This is my first time telling my story in a public way. And uh, the reason that I'm so excited and comfortable doing it is because it's with you. You know, you've been talking to me on and off in your support group for the last, I don't know, two years, year and a half, something like that. And um, I just know that you'll handle everything with uh, compassion and empathy and that you're not uh, turned off by my brand of humor when it comes to uh, discussing my trauma because, you know, humor is the only way I really know how to talk about it. You know, if you don't laugh, you cry. So I'm uh, excited to be here. That's so, yeah, I'm so glad. And I'm so glad. And yes, you know, laugh away. I think it's a really good way of healing. It's also a really good way of getting emotionally distanced from what occurred. Yeah. And I have found myself doing that for a long time. And when I was younger, you know, people would be like, whoa, she's making jokes about this stuff. Um, And I didn't realize it was like a coping mechanism until, you know, adulthood when I started going to therapy. Um, So, yeah, uh, I guess I'll just kind of get into it. Yeah, please, please, please. And actually, before you tell your story, just so people know that there that you do other things too, and that you are other things too, I want uh, you to be able to talk about the work that you do and a little bit about your life as it is now, and then we'll go into your story. Okay, great. So I am married. I have a wonderful wife. We've been together for almost 19 years. It'll be 19 years in January, and we've been married for eight of those. We have three rescue dogs and I have some reptiles as well. I'm just a giant animal lover and I am a professional dog behavior consultant and I specialize in highly traumatized dogs who typically display, you know, aggression, anxiety, fear-based behaviors. And I do it because honestly, like I relate really heavily to the animals I'm working with and it's healing to me to help traumatized animals heal. It is so powerful, actually, to hear what you're saying about animals and healing other things' traumas and learning a lot about yourself through how you treat animals. But also, you learn a lot about people when you see how they treat animals. And there are actually a number of people who have said that they thought that they were with someone or the first clue that they were with someone who wasn't healthy was how they treated their animal. So I'm also very connected to my rescue dogs who, well, the one who's still living, unfortunately, the others have passed, who looks at me throughout the day and night to make sure I'm still there, which you could, you could just tell he was abandoned over and over. And I spent a little bit of my morning watching a video of a turtle sneezing because it was cute. So this is exactly the right audience. But I love that you have been able to craft a life for yourself that is in line with you and doing work that is good and having a a wife, a family system, you know, that really feels, I think, whole and how lovely that is for you. And as we get into your story, we'll find out more about why that is so meaningful. Okay. Anything else about what you're doing these days? I don't think so. I'm just, I'm doing my best to utilize all the therapy available to really put this stuff down and walk away from it and 
you know, leave it at the feet of the people who deserve to be carrying the weight of the trauma and the guilt and the pain and the shame, because I come to recognize through all of that therapy that I'm not that person. And, you know, it is possible to walk away from those things with the right support in place. And I am so thankful that I have had access to that support. I know not everybody does. Um, So I feel very fortunate that this is where I've ended up after the way my life started. Mm, That's very powerful. Okay. So now, how did your family get incorporated into the Way International? So my parents were both very young when they entered the Way International separately from one another. They grew up not far from each other, but had never met until they were both like enmeshed within the cults. My mother was running from a lot of things, as most people who enter cults are, and had found Christianity on her college campus. And she was real lost. And she kind of took off from college on like this random road trip and met a bunch of different Christian folks along the way and even attended like a Pentecostal church down south. But she got homesick. And when she came back home, um, she connected back with those college folks and they hooked her up with people who were already involved in a way. And she started attending fellowship and just dove in headfirst. And she became what they call a WOW ambassador. Uh, which is way over the world, meaning they put you through a developmental program, which of course you pay for. And then they send you out into the world where you need to sustain your income while also witnessing to folks to bring them into the way. And so my mom spent a bunch of time traveling to Texas and other areas down south where she witnessed to a bunch of people and formed fellowships and, uh, you know, brought people to the organization. My father was quite young. He was 19 and he was very lost as well. And he got witnessed to and found it to be life-changing and powerful. And he followed that, joined a fellowship, went down to Ohio where uh, the headquarters are, and got real deep into their leadership. He was in the Way Core, which is their leadership development program. It's a lot more in depth than the WOW Ambassador program. WOW Ambassadors commit to a year, whereas when you join the Way Core, it's supposed to be for life. And, you know, you get sponsors who help pay your way through your leadership program so you can focus on that rather than, you know, on external work. And once you have sponsors who are paying your way, you are dedicated. Like, you can't let those people down. And that was a big motivating factor for him. Um, so he graduated from the Seventh Way Corps and was given fellowship to begin his life as a leader. And he started teaching classes. Um, doctor, well, I say doctor. He's not really a doctor. Um, he has a, a very fake PhD, which I can you know, get into, but Dr. Victor Paul Werewell, who's the founder of The Way International, had an entire set of classes, kind of like multi-level marketing within a Christian organization, because you have to pay for each class. So it starts with the foundational class, the power for abundant living, and works its way up the rungs until you're in the advanced class, at which time you can move into leadership. But you pay for each class, you tithe 10% of your income throughout the duration of your time in The Way. My dad was teaching classes for Dr. Werewolf, who he knew personally. Um, My dad helped install a bunch of the infrastructure at headquarters in Ohio. So he had a personal relationship with Dr. Werewolf. And so he was given the opportunity to teach Power for Abundant Living, intermediate class and advanced class. And 
in Power for Abundant Living, you learn how to speak in tongues and interpret, which is a core thing about Dr. Werewolf's teachings is that we don't just speak in tongues. We also have the power to interpret it. And only he can teach you how to interpret when you speak in tongues. Wow. Okay. So hold on. I know it's really complicated. It's really complicated. No, it's, it's not that it, okay. Yes, it is complicated. It's multi-layered and multi-level it seems right. First of all, the fake doctor. Okay, great. That's awesome. Um, And I do want to hear about that. And hopefully we will hear about that because already you have someone who is telling you their qualifications and is going to be having people trust him as a leader, as a, as a sage person who knows about a lot of things because they're a doctor. At least that's what we suppose about people who have that title and to find out that it's not real. And I know you'll explain it. Then also the power for abundant living. The irony is so palpable that in order to learn about having abundant living, you have to pay to take a class and you also have to tithe. So who's the one who's having the abundant living, right? While you're learning how to have abundant living, it's just the leadership. It's the person who's making all the cash. And so, you know, how much do I have to pay you in order to have abundant living? It's so much like that prosperity principle, like giving over so that you'll receive, but really the person you're giving to is the only one who really ever receives um, to a great degree. Oh my goodness. Okay. So tell me about the doctorate. That's not a doctorate first, if you can. Okay. So originally, Victor Paul Werewell was born in 1916. Um, he graduated with a bachelor's from Lakeland College in 1937. He then went to Princeton Theological Seminary in 1941 with a master's in practical theology. He then began trial sermons under that organization in 1941 in Ohio for the Evangelical and Reformed Church. In 1942, he was spoken to by God, that's his claim, and was told that God would teach him his word like it had not been known since the first century if Victor Paul Werewell would teach it to others. And then he claims he required proof from God that this was indeed God and his word and asked to see it snow, at which time he opened his eyes and saw a veritable blizzard outside his window. And that is his claim to his first connection with God, you know, imbuing him with these powers to tell his word as it was meant to be told and to interpret things. And then his first radio broadcast was in 1942, which um, was originally called Vesper Chimes and then became Chimes Hour Youth Caravan in 1947. In 1948, Victor Paul Werewolf was issued a doctorate from Pikes Peak Seminary, an organization which was lacking accreditation and formal classes. So he claims he has a doctorate, but it's from an organization that has no formal classes and no accreditation as a college of any kind. And so he attached doctor to his name at that time, and they're moving forward, has always been referred to as Dr. Victor Paul Werewolf, but it is a fake college with which he was given his doctorate. And that says so much um, about also just consistently using a title that has no backing and that cannot really be verified in any way with any standard attached to it. Right. Okay. Was there more about that? Because I also had something else. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. His, the last, so (laughs) he does a lot of stuff in the 50s. 
He's moving, he's shaking, he's figuring out how to steal other people's work. It's a whole thing. But he did claim that he had also attended the Moody Bible School's correspondence program. And Moody Bible School has straight up said that he never attended any of their correspondence programs. So he made claims to also attending further continuing education that is not true and did not exist. Wow. How how L. Ron Hubbard of him. Right? Uh-huh. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> Like I did this and I am this and no, you're not. No, you didn't. Okay. Wow. Anything else? No. Then we get into him becoming a missionary, meeting other leaders in evangelical Christian organizations, taking their classes and then stealing those classes almost word for word and rebranding them and teaching them himself. And also taking books of theirs almost word for word, rebranding them and publishing them. And he made a fortune off of all of this. So everything he did was basically a lie, but he did it so well and so charismatically and so powerfully that people believed. The other thing I was going to mention was about speaking in tongues. So interpreting what someone else is saying is an impossible thing to do. Even though I guess you can, you can develop kind of a key for what certain sounds might mean or words or whatever else, or you can just decide it on the spot. But I've talked to so many people who said that they pretended to speak in tongues just to please the people in the room or just to get out of the exorcism that they were doing, whatever the situation was, that they knew they just had to come up with sounds and things that sounded like words from another place from on high. And so the only interpretation, if someone were to actually interpret that accurately, it would be, oh, that person is saying, what can I make up so that I can finally get out of here and eat something or go to sleep or, you know, not be on the hot seat? Yeah. I mean, speaking in tongues is such a core part of this belief system. That's actually how my parents met, circling back to them meeting and my father's course in leadership. He was teaching an entire class on how to speak in tongues and interpret. And my mother took that class. And that is how they connected and ultimately ended up leaving their partners that they were with at the time and getting married, coming together, having myself and my siblings. So speaking in tongues does a lot of things, including bringing people together, I guess. But um, who knew it was that romantic? It is apparently. But my I mean, they both fully believed that they were speaking in tongues. Magical thinking for them was real. They were not in their minds pretending or faking. And my father, who I've spoken to about this fairly recently, still believes that he can speak in tongues and interpret and that that's what he was doing for his duration within the organization. I will say that I have connected with a lot of first generation members or ex-members of the Way International who say they were faking it and just kind of making up vowels and consonants and sounds that sounded like things they had heard in movies, maybe where people were speaking foreign or dead languages. And then they were just making up interpretations that they thought, you know, the leadership, my father in this case would want to hear. So I do think that there was a lot of magical thinking that permeated the WOW ambassadors, the the WACOR members, um, other leadership within the organization, probably a lot of folks who came in pain and were looking for answers, right? But there's a great deal of folks who also will now say, yeah, I was faking it. All these years later, they can admit to that. So I will say from my own experience, because I was the fellowship leader's child, there was a lot of expectation on me. There was video of myself when I was four years old 
speaking in tongues. And for those who obviously aren't looking at me, I am using quotation marks. Um, but there's videos of me doing what all those adults said they were doing and faking, speaking in tongues, utilizing things that I had heard, you know. And by the time I was 12, I was speaking in tongues and interpreting. And I can tell you that it was never real for me. I knew I had to fake it and fake it well so that I didn't get in trouble, but it never meant anything to me. And it was just gibberish. Right. And that's not to say that others aren't doing it with kind of a pure intention, that they really do believe that this is something spiritual working through them and others really don't. But you also see the power of the need to be seen a certain way and not judged, not ostracized. You know, that you're going to get so much positive reinforcement also for speaking in tongues, right? It helps with a feeling of community and connection. And there are so many other reasons people might do it. All right. So coming back to your story. So is there more about your folks before you were born or should we go to when you arrived on the planet? I think an important thing to tie back, because at the end of my story, this is going to be really uh, pertinent is that my mother maintained connection with her immediate family in a way that was typically discouraged. So we weren't encouraged to have relationships with worldly people. And my mother's family were all worldly people. They were all Catholic. And there's a lot of Catholic dogma that probably helped lead her into this organization. And she did witness to them. She did try to convert them. And I think that happened routinely. And that's the only reason she was allowed to maintain connection with them and probably my father covering it up to a degree, the amount of connection that she still had with her family. So, and that has been a bone of contention in their relationship. My father actually moved us away from her family. When I was very young, we lived near them and he moved us away in order to try to get some separation and started an entirely new fellowship in the area we moved to, which is another reason we were moved. So yeah, those worldly connections are going to kind of come back and bite my parents in the ass. But, you know, that's important to note. Yeah, really important. And I'm sorry for your mom that that happened. And for you, you know, just to move away from family outside of this and the decisions that are made for you, including for your mom, that were not, I'm sure, her first choice or of her choosing. Okay. Wow. Right. So then tell me what happens next in the story. I mean, so I am the oldest child of three children and I have memories as early as like four. So, you know, going back to being that young, another part of the way is the subservience of women. And if you look at Washington Post articles from the 1980s, you'll see the way is often referred to as the kissing cult. The reason for this is that even as young children, we were made to kiss all men on the mouth. So when women greeted men, we kissed all of them. And that was sort of the beginning of grooming for sexual abuse for both adult women who entered the ministry and children who were born in. And of course, when you're born in and the grooming starts that young, it's very effective in removing bodily autonomy and sort of teaching you your place in the organization and within the world. And the one time I refused when I was about five, I humiliated my father at a, at a branch meeting by saying no to kissing a man that I thought was really creepy. And I was later corrected by being spanked with a Bible. So I never said no again. 
So that was sort of the base expectation for young girls that were born in. You couldn't say no. No was not an option. And so that really led me down a path of a lot of abuse. You know, myself and my siblings uh, started being groomed and used almost immediately. Um, And that's really how it is, I think, for a lot of folks who are born in. Although I do need to say that, like, this is my personal experience and my story. My father was leadership. So there was different expectations on all of us than there might be for other folks who grew up in the way. I know that I've connected with people who have positive stories and who don't have the same experiences. So I do think it's important to note that this may be, my story may be on the more extreme end of the abuse and grooming that happens. Okay. And I'm glad that you said that. I mean, it's it's an important qualifier. And what's also true is that if a leader knows about what's happening, even if it is on the more extreme end of things, it's still under his purview and it's still under his control and his say. And then it's still his responsibility, no matter what. For sure. And the way that this cult is organized is based on a tree. So the trunk is, you know, the main organization headquarters in Ohio where Victor Paul Ware will live um, until his death and where all presidential leadership has lived since, to my knowledge. And then there are branches, which each state or country they were in has a branch, at least one branch. And then there were twigs, which were the in-home fellowships. This is an international organization with fellowship groups all over the world. And that continues to be true. At its height, there were like 100,000 members. So this is big. And the fact that they're still under the radar is big. But the trunk, so Victor Powell will himself, the way the guy who interprets the word, he had a lot of sexual assault and abuse allegations that came out after his death. They were covered up well while he was alive. And he did teach a class called the Christian Family and Sex Class. And in that class, he taught not only how a wife should behave, but how a wife should have sex with her husband. And he did give sex tips in that class. And he did show pornography in that class. So he showed pornography that was women having sex with each other and also women having sex with animals in order to supposedly desensitize his followers to these extremes that were caused by the devil spirits possessing them. So Victor Paul Werewolf didn't teach that original sin was eating the apple. He actually taught that original sin was masturbation for whatever reason. But his obsession with lesbian sex and bestiality did lead to Craig Martindale being able to transform that. So when he took power, Craig Martindale changed original sin to being lesbian sex. Essentially, Eve had sex with the devil who had taken the form of a woman. And Adam also sinned because he participated somehow, although that was never made clear by Craig Martindale. So this Christian family and sex class not only changed the lives for women, it changed the lives for pretty much all queer people within the way international. And I have connected with people who attended this class as young as 13 years old. So this was something that was just a huge core belief system, whether they want to advertise that or not. Oh, there's so much wrong with that on on every level. And 
Yeah, you know, it makes me wonder a couple of things. First of all, that would never be allowed now, you know, in a school system where we know about uh, child development and what children should be exposed to, to a certain degree, to the best of our ability of really knowing uh, at certain ages. And that would be way too young to be shown anything that would be disturbing in that way. Because what do you do with it? You just have nightmares about it, or you're just afraid, you know, it's like these images in your head. And it makes me wonder about him, why this was such a thing for him, you know, makes me wonder about his past, you know, to a lesser degree, I think about like, Walt Disney, right? Like that all these movies have this evil stepmother or evil witch or like there's, or the mom dies. There's something about women that he has something about women. Like I can't, I don't know what it is, but it's a recurring theme and it's disturbing. And while I do love Disney movies, there's, I couldn't, I can't help but get past that. There is something very interesting about, I mean, when you start to wonder about why someone cares to this degree about those issues and needs to make it a thing to really be used to horrify the people in the group. It's very interesting. I kind of wish I knew more about his past. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of uh, assumptions that can be made. There's, in fact, a lot of it out on the internet in the first generation that took classes like this. Later on, these classes were taken and redone. The Christian family and sex class, I believe, and I could be wrong, still exists in some form or another, but was rewritten. The fact that this was just the mindset of like, you know, women are there for men's pleasure. They are there to serve men, um, including, you know, female children is deeply disturbing. And, and young boys who were raised in this organization were taught to believe these, these things as well. And I'm not saying that, like, they all grew up to become abusers, but that was what they were surrounded by is like, this is how we treat women. This is what is expected, you know. And I think that it runs deep. And, you know, Victor Poe Errol died when I was really little. So he died um, the year I was born. And prior to his death, he had inserted Craig Martindale into the presidency and leadership. And Craig Martindale continued these same beliefs, if not worse, and was also accused of a lot of sexual assault. People sued him and took him to court. He always settled as to the way, um, which again, I think that settlement isn't proof, but does display the need to hide something. And he was forced to step down from his presidency due to these allegations and the fact that they went to court. So I grew up under Craig Martindale, who kind of took everything to the next level. And my father has even said that he's sorry I was exposed to the more dogmatic beliefs. He believes that the way got worse when Craig Martindale took over because I think of his personal connection to Dr. Werewolf. But Craig Martindale just carried on the mantle. And when he was forced to step down, they did put a woman into leadership, I think, to, again, try to smooth things over and push things under the rug. But I can't really speak of personal experience beyond like the year 2000. So he stepped down after that. Wow. So here, as a girl, you are getting spanked with the Bible for not kissing a man on the mouth. Just the whole sentence, you know, there's just, it's almost hard to say it all without cringing for a lot of reasons. And to have the Bible be used also as um, a method of abuse 
and pain, you know, I mean, it was, it was already being used or misused in that way and reinterpreted in that way, but to have it actually in a very tangible way, used that way, it's a very obvious message. My goodness. So you're saying even from when you were young, that was taking place. And so what else was going on as you were growing up? So because the way is home fellowship based, most children within the organization attended public schools. So while I was being basically raised and indoctrinated under this belief system, I was also sent out into public schools with all of these beliefs in place. And that put me in a position to be abused by men and young men, boys, when I was out in these public places or not so much public places, but with people that were quote unquote worldly, I didn't know that I could say no. And so throughout my school experience, I suffered abuse both within and outside of the way because I just had no bodily autonomy. At the same time, there was also a lot of pressure on me to perform both within the organization and outside of it as the fellowship leader's child. And so I excelled in school. I excelled in sports. I kept a high GPA. I played on JV and varsity teams. And I had a few friends who stuck around even after my parents got weird and witnessed to their parents and made them come to fellowship a couple times. That scared off a lot of people because, of course, anytime I befriended someone, if we became close enough, they started coming to the house. My parents would interact with their parents and witness to them and they'd come to fellowship and then they'd either join or they'd leave. I was also the kid that was carrying around both a copy of the Bible and um, what's called uh, the Blue Book or a book called The Bible Tells Me So, written by Dr. Werewolf on how to interpret the Bible. So I was this weird, very high achieving child carrying around biblical things and having uh, very strange relationships with people that I was never fully myself, either in the organization or outside of it. There were just so many secrets. And I became, I guess, a secret keeper uh, in a lot of ways. It was isolating while also not technically being isolated, if that makes sense. Right. Just this idea that when you became friends with someone, your parents basically would claim their family and would make them have to basically choose if they're going to be getting involved in the church or not. But I'm sure it scared some people away. And others where that became, it's like, you know, you reaching out and becoming friends with someone shouldn't be used as recruitment. But if that's the way it was seen in the church, you know, that everyone is a is a potential recruit or every connection is a potential recruiting opportunity. It's very hard to have anything of your own and to be able to decide how that relationship is going to go based on the relationship itself, not the force really that your parents put on it. And then also, you know, this idea that I hear a lot of people talking about where they have this phrase in their head as kids and when they make a connection with someone or when they're playing, if they only knew, if they only knew my secrets, if they only knew my life and what I'm going through, what's in my head or what book is in my backpack, you know, how would they feel about me? Would they still like me? Yeah, you can be in a room full of people and feel very much alone, very different. Yeah, and I definitely was very different and didn't know how to connect with people in a genuine way because of those secrets. And that's lingered into adulthood. Like, I really feel like it's only within the last 
maybe eight years that I've started to form more genuine relationships with people and, and let them see all of the pieces of me. And also figuring out who I was outside of the confines of that organization took a really long time. It was a lot of work to unearth this version of me, who I, I do believe like this is who I was going to be to begin with. And I had to go and like rescue this part of myself that was like the true M. And, you know, it's been quite a journey, but I'm really glad to be here in this way and have these genuine connections, despite how hard this organization tried to literally beat that out of me. Uh, Were you feeling different from, I mean, of course, yes, from the kids at public school, et cetera, but were you feeling different from how you thought they in the group wanted you to be or your parents wanted you to be, were you aware of feeling different than that? Absolutely. It was terrifying. There was just all these expectations that I didn't know how to meet, really. You couldn't meet them. And I knew that I was attracted to girls in a way that I really, really shouldn't be. Um, Because again, going back to those core tenets of like homosexuality being the first sin, and being unforgivable, you could have the devil spirit cast out of you if you chose to. But it was something where like 10, 11 years old, realizing that you might like girls in a way that is not allowed. And that that means that you have a devil spirit living inside of you. So of course, that became one of my biggest secrets because I didn't want to have to go through having that devil spirit cast out of me. Essentially, that's what they call exercising, like exorcism within the way is casting out the devil spirits. So I didn't want to have that devil spirit cast out because I didn't want people to know it existed on one hand. And on the other hand, I desperately wanted to get rid of it because it made me different and it made it so that I was not going to go to heaven. And so feeling really different than I should be within that organization is something that I recognized at a pretty young age. Okay. So right. This multi-layered feeling different, like different within different uh, and on and on. And I wonder just if you can, for a moment, just talk about what an exorcism was like in the group, what happened? So a lot of this was, you know, it was done behind closed doors. It wasn't like one of those things where they got you up on stage and cast out devil spirits. It was done much more personally. And in the organization, it would take fellowship leader and potentially more than one fellowship leader. They would pray over you. They would lay hands on you. They would speak in tongues with the goal that you would come out of this also speaking in tongues. And, you know, my father has told me that he's participated in many uh, exorcisms or many situations in which he's cast out these devil spirits. And so I don't know a lot of the details because it is one of those things that they don't really advertise. I do know that my father did pray over me and lay hands on me and speak in tongues over me for a variety of reasons throughout my life. He could not bring himself to believe that I was gay. My mother says she knew and she just helped me keep that secret. And my father says that until my extended family started questioning my sexual orientation, that he just couldn't even look at it. And part of that is because I masked it really hard. I masked it really hard. And, you know, I do believe that I would have 
experienced that had I been within the organization longer. And I've spoken to a couple of folks who did experience the casting out of devil spirits as gay people within the organization. So it is something that does happen. Whether it still happens to this day, I don't know, but I imagine it does because all of the core beliefs that are laid out are the same. And there's recent articles that are available on the internet for anybody to find through theway.org talking about homosexuality being a choice, not genetic, and that it is, you know, a devil spirit that needs to be removed in order for the person to be able to, you know, be clean and go to heaven. So those things are out there for everybody to find. Okay. So then uh, from all of this, it's interesting that your mom knew, but she held your secret, which is, it's interesting because it's a bold move on her part uh, and protective of you to whatever degree she, I guess she was able to be protective. And then what happened after that? So we went to this event called the Rock of Ages, um, which is no longer held. I believe the last one was in 1995. Victor Paul Whirlwood did start the Rock of Ages, and it was a giant Christian festival at headquarters. And there was everything you could possibly want. We would drive in a camper. We would stay in that camper at the height of it were 16,000 people in attendance. So there were campers just like for acres. There were communal meals. There was lots of ice cream. There were pony rides. There was a petting zoo. They flooded the parking lot and turned it into a water park. And at the Rock of Ages, it was basically like kids were just there for the picking. Um, for predators, because we were taught to treat all adults as family, as parents. And so if our parents weren't present, we just had to listen to the nearest adult. And we were kind of allowed because it was all family and it was safe. We were allowed to run around with thousands of people. And, you know, a lot of abuse happened at those festivals. I'm not sure why they stopped having them, but I imagine part of it was all of the sex abuse allegations. And I certainly experienced uh, sex abuse while I was at those festivals. And, you know, that had a huge impact on everything for me. It changed my life, you know, it shaped my life in a lot of ways. Uh, And we attended every summer. So from my birth until it stopped in 1995, we went to every single one. We went to branch meetings, which were all of the fellowship leaders and their families from our branch got together on a monthly basis. And those were really performative. Um, Lots of being perfect children, getting up and singing, serving men, kissing people in the mouth, being silent and seen and not heard. Um, Sometimes we were lucky enough to have like a children's fellowship where one of the adults or teenagers would take all the kids into another room and we would color coloring books that were provided by the way and things like that. But for the most part, we were integrated into all of these fellowship meetings. You know, at the branch meetings at the Rock of Ages, there was a lot of preaching at the Rock of Ages in particular. Dr. Werewolf and Craig Martindale would get up on stage. They would preach. There was the Waycord band. So we had live music. Um, the way had their own music. And then Craig Martindale created something called uh, Athletes of the Spirit, which I think is also really important to talk about. 
So Athletes of the Spirit was actually like a live action play that was recorded in which he participated. He did some dancing and slaying of, of devil spirits, but it was a live action play and it was a bunch of devil spirits dancing around and trying to possess athletes of the spirits, the spiritual leaders and the spiritual leaders, you know, vanquishing the devil spirits. It's like an hour and a half long or something. The production value is like huge. Think like Saturday Night Fever. So we've got we've got dry ice, we've got flashing lights, we've got stairs, we've got scaffolding that these people are climbing. They're all wearing these crazy costumes. And, um, you know, as a child, seeing that, it brought those devil spirits to life. I had nightmares about those devil spirits into my adulthood because, like, it was just this this intense visual um, that really, like, inundated everything. And so we had Athletes of the Spirit coloring books. We had Athletes of the Spirit swag, if you will. We had it. My parents still have the VHS tape of the original recording. It is on YouTube under a private link, like fully recorded. They translated it into French and Spanish, and that was disseminated outside of the United States. Like it was a really big thing that Craig Martindale invested a ton of money in, I think in part to attract more folks. Like, look at this, look at this big thing we can produce. This is the story. We are spiritual warriors. We are vanquishing devil spirits come to us and we can save you. We can show you literally the way. There was just so many things that that painted my belief systems and my experiences that were set there to, you know, take away control. We didn't have any control. The devil spirits could possess us at any moment if we didn't believe hard enough. You know, if you got sick, you were possessed by a, a devil spirit. If you were mentally ill, it was absolutely a devil spirit. If you're gay, it was a devil spirit. And there was a lot of that for me. I developed chronic illness. I was gay. I had mental illness that went undiagnosed for a very long time. So in theory, I had three devil spirits in me that needed to be vanquished. <laughs> and amongst all that, like, how do you even know what's real anymore? So for me, it was all real. And you know, the abuse that happened was something that was just to be expected. It was just, this is going to be part of your life. Um, this is what you were meant to be because you're a female child. And all of the red flags were somehow ignored by my school and by hospitals. I broke both arms, both legs, my nose, multiple fingers, multiple toes, my clavicle. I had some stitches and I went to the ER for most of those you know, even though sometimes I was afraid to ask for that medical care and not to my knowledge, like CPS was never called. Um, and I know things are better now, but back then, like there was nothing protecting me. Uh, school never, because I would perform so highly, even though I was obviously an anxious child and had ADHD, like those things weren't brought to the attention of my parents. And I was just left to suffer within this organization because nobody on the outside was doing anything including my mom's family who was in contact with us. So, you know, it was insidious. So I just, I'm, I'm trying to imagine you as this completely vulnerable, panicked young girl with no one and feeling you had something inside of you that was horrible. The broken bones, if you don't mind me asking, what was that from? 
some of it was accidents or sport-related injuries that I didn't report to my parents or anybody because I knew I'd get in trouble. And then they got worse because I was walking on them or hiding them. And some of them were from being hit. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. So yeah, again, alone and being in pain, you probably have developed a high tolerance out of necessity. Oh, I so wish, so wish someone, anyone would have done something. There were so many opportunities for people to intervene and they didn't. No. And I, I had many, many looking back on it, classic signs of child sexual abuse. I had many signs of physical abuse that could have been dealt with had I been given like a second look by anybody. And, you know, as an adult having to re-examine all that and deal with it and go and seek proper diagnosis for medical things and mental health things and like get that under control in my 20s and 30s rather than when I was like, you know, prepubescent and a teenager, like that really set me back a lot. And I still had so many of those beliefs where it was like, it was my fault. I had let these devil spirits in and I just had to suffer the consequences of that and or go get them cast out right so those are my options but you know we did get excommunicated and so no one could cast them out anymore unless i told my father which was scarier than the concept of getting them cast out wow okay so let's hmm yeah i want to i want to hug the girl that you're talking about right now i just want to protect her i'm so sorry thank you okay So let's talk about excommunication. So what happened? How did that happen? So during the transfer of leadership to Craig Martindale, a lot of people, including my father, that were like serious followers of Dr. Werewolf, were dissatisfied. And I think my father has always been a rebellious person in his core. He has a lot of anger, um, which is, of course, what led him to the way to begin with. And so... When leadership changed and he felt like things were getting more dogmatic, um, he started pushing back. And to my knowledge, the story is essentially that they started getting me actual medical care for some of the chronic illness issues that were coming up um, rather than just, you know, praying it away, which I am forever thankful for them for doing that. And I, again, was a very serious athlete and my family chose to come to all of my games. And that meant that my father was slightly less available and was basically choosing his family over the way, which in the hierarchy of belief, you know, number one is God, number two is the way, number three is fellowship, number four is your actual family. And so he was choosing like the fourth thing above everything else. And so they were uh, Mark and Avoid, along with me and my siblings, which is their term for excommunication. And when that occurs, everybody is ordered to treat you like you died. And so we had zero contact from the moment we were Mark and Avoid with these people that were basically our family. Our fellowship was large and strong and You know, I had a lot of moms, I had a lot of dads, I had a lot of siblings, aunts, uncles, you know, within that structure. Um, And all of those families that helped raise me were just gone. Everything was gone. The structure was gone. The people were gone. The faith for me was gone. It very much felt like we had been excommunicated from God himself. And I carried that for a long time, this concept of being excommunicated from God. 
it took me a long time to heal that and realize that that was actually not the case. None of this had anything to do with God and in fact had something to do with my parents electing to become good parents to the best of their ability. But once we were excommunicated and we didn't have contact with anybody anymore, and my parents had been in since they were like 19. Um, and at this point they were, I don't know to do the math, they were in their like 50s. And, you know, they were in for 26 years, I believe, last time I did the math. I may be off by a year or two. And so like literally everything fell out for them too. And so they didn't know how to support us. They didn't even know how to support themselves through this. So there was a lot of disconnection in our immediate family. Um, There was a lot of loss and grief that wasn't being processed. It kind of left all of us vulnerable to the world. We did join a splinter fellowship for a while and attended that fellowship for a couple of years until I was about 15, that Splinter Fellowship essentially supposedly went back and followed things the way that Victor Werewolf had intended for them to be followed. So it was very attractive to my parents. And they attended that with us for several years. And then they kind of fell off and neither of them have returned. Although in speaking to my father, you know, he wishes he could on some ways, like he doesn't want to return to the organization as it is, but he wants to return to the organization as it was. He still holds most of those beliefs, although he has apologized for the homophobia with which I was raised. He does love and accept my partner. It took us a long time to get here. You know, they came to our wedding, which was really a huge thing for us. Those years up until I met my wife and moved away from like 15 to 19 were pretty terrible. You know, a lot of really bad things happened to me because again, like I had no bodily autonomy to my knowledge. I didn't understand the concept of consent in the slightest. I, you know, fell in with people that took advantage of me and my kindness. I was the driver. I spread, you know, I gave people money because I was working full time and going to college full time. I was doing drugs. I was really trying to prove my heterosexuality. So I spent a lot of time dating men. You know, my father would set me up with men. Uh, The last man he set me up with, I was 17 and he was 26. And so, you know, it was like we were all just treading water and feeling miserably again, like my father just was trying so hard to not give into this belief that I could possibly be gay and continued to try to like steer me towards that heteronormative life for a very long time. And so, you know, like when I look back at that and I'm like, man, I was a kid still. I was just 17 and he was setting me up with an adult man. You know, a nine year difference when you're a 17 year old kid is like a really big difference. Um, but that would have been very normalized within the way. I genuinely think he doesn't believe he did anything wrong. It was doing anything wrong because of how indoctrinated into those beliefs he was. It's illegal also, right? Because you're a minor. I mean, what's illegal though? Like nothing, like that's the thing is like there's just like no holds barred when it comes to the way the way treated women and continues to treat women, you know? And I don't think he's fully out of those belief systems. Uh, We have a very hard time communicating about my experiences with men. You know, I confronted them fairly recently about having been raped when I was 15 by a 27-year-old man. And when I told them about it, my father said to me, I hope you learned your lesson and walked away. And 
they didn't bring me to the doctor. They didn't check me for pregnancy. They didn't check me for STDs. They didn't ensure I wasn't injured. They didn't go call the police. They just never talked to me about it again. Um, and so at that point, that really solidified, okay, this is just what I can expect to happen to me. I'm not going to have any support with it. And apparently I shouldn't be this upset about it. And it's my fault. And so, you know, I just continued to go along with those beliefs for a very long time. And, you know, every time I try to confront those things with my family, <laughs> the result is lackluster on their end. You know, like once there was a man who was abusing me at, at, who had come to our fellowship, my father had recruited him and he was sexually abusing me for a while. And it wasn't until two of the older girls in our direct fellowship group complained to their fathers that this abuser was removed. So, you know, I was showing signs of sexual abuse that were ignored. I didn't feel like I could straight up say to my parents, like, hey, this man is doing this because that was what was expected. But when these people who weren't so involved in leadership and weren't going to the Rock of Ages, whose daughters weren't being routinely exposed to sex abuse, um, when those girls started being harassed by him, it was finally taken seriously and he was promoted. So, you know, I was never a priority. My body was never a priority. My safety wasn't a priority. And that pattern continued. And that's how I treated myself into my young adulthood is that my safety wasn't a priority. My body wasn't my own and none of it really mattered. We still have a few moments left, but if you don't mind even just spending a minute helping the listeners understand when you're talking about the signs of sexual abuse, knowing that there are some people listening to this who are still in situations where this could be happening, they might actually not know what those signs are to look for. And I guess I want to empower them now to know what to watch out for uh, if they're a family or friends or part of a congregation or whatever it is. So what what are the signs typically? Well, for me, you know, speaking of my own experience, one would be acting out sexually. You know, I didn't know that those boundaries existed. And so I did inappropriate things to other people who were, you know, external to the organization. And I was not safe with my body. I was, you know, getting caught in compromising positions with boys at school. I had a lot of partners. And I wasn't necessarily happy about it or consenting to it, but I didn't know that at the time. I was self-harming quite a bit. And, you know, I felt like I was doing a pretty good job of, of putting it in places that wouldn't be noticed. Um, I did try to hide it, but there's no way, like, my parents saw it. People knew it was happening. Um, I was using drugs and alcohol as a form of escapism. I was so angry. Um, I was so angry. I was punching holes in walls. I was kicking holes in doors. I was just screaming. I was so full of rage and I didn't know why and I didn't know how to direct it. And I think part of that goes back to the self-harm. It's just like, I didn't know how to do anything but abuse myself in response to being abused. And I think there were so many things, you know, I was walking around school not to call out goths and metalheads, but I was walking around with like safety pins that I had put through ears and noses and things like in the bathroom at school. I was, you know, dressing in a way that hid my body a lot. I was sexually promiscuous. There were, you know, like there were so many things that like anybody who I think was trained should have picked up on. 
Right. They should have picked up on it. Oh, there are so many opportunities for someone to step in here and they just didn't. And yes, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, the response is often punitive, you know, that you're this acting out kid. And then, you know, that just continues the cycle of you getting punished or you punishing yourself. But yeah, if you learn that you're supposed to direct things inward, then you are going to take it out on yourself. Um, there's no question about that. All right. So because now there's going to be a part two, take us to where would be a good place to kind of break in this story, just something else that you wanted to make sure to mention today before we continue next time. I think my my big thing is that the Way International is a cult. They are a worldwide cult who has the resources to continue to hide the abuse that people are suffering within their organization on every level, spiritually, financially, physically, sexually. And until they're called out on it in a larger way, until there is acknowledgement that this organization exists and is a cult, it's not going to stop. If you're a survivor of The Way International and you want to connect, contact information for me will be in the show notes. Please do reach out, especially second and third generation survivors, because all of the stories that are out there, the books that have been published are all first generation survivors. And at this point, they're decades old. We need to start telling our stories now in this moment. You're not alone. You're not alone. Whether you're facing abuse within The Way International, another cultic organization, a high control group a romantic partnership. You're not alone and there is support and there is life after this. You can heal, you can move on, you can have a beautiful life. I want to stress that my life is beautiful and it is filled with love and joy and happiness and adventure and all the things I deserved when I was that little girl. And it's available for you too. And I would love to talk more about getting out of my abuse as a teenager and young adult and moving towards healing and what that looked like for me, because I do think that those stories are just as important as the kind of horrific stories that come along with these organizations. That's so powerfully said. You speak beautifully, by the way, um, by the way, don't mean to use that. It has a whole other meaning to me right now. Um, so in spite of the way you speak beautifully and um, and you've been able to find happiness, which you said, and I, I'm so happy for you. Uh, you deserve it. And then some. So I look forward to talking to you some more. And I'm sure until the next time we talk, there are going to be other things that come to mind that you want to add to your story potentially. So feel free to jump in. And even if that means we need to go back to a time, chronologically speaking, that we already talked about, that's okay. But it's also really wonderful that you want to be a resource to others to just think about the the quiet person that you had to be with the secrets and now being able to say, contact me, you know, reach out to me. I am here for you and uh, let's connect. I want you to know what happened and I want to know what happened to you. I mean, it's a very uh, empowered way of being in the world and and I'm glad that you have it now. So thank you so much for today. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled that my first conversation about this is with you. Um, it means a lot that you believed enough in me and my story to ask me to come on this show. The validation that I felt from that was huge. So thank you. My pleasure. Really, really. One more thing before you go. 
you, thank you, thank you, Em. Really, it's so good to hear you start to talk about what you went through. I am really honored that you chose this show, that you chose me as a host, that you could feel comfortable telling me about your experiences, that you could feel comfortable with this format to start to talk. It is very powerful when people say that they felt safe sharing on the Indoctrination podcast. It makes me feel very gratified, very happy about that. It is something that is very difficult, though, for people who have been trained to keep secrets, who have been trained to not share what happened to them, who have this sort of sense inside that they're potentially harming themselves by talking or harming others by talking or running a risk of disengaging from God who might be upset that they're talking. So many things keep people quiet. And so to get to this point where you say, you know what, this is my experience, so this is my truth and I have the right to share it, is a powerful and empowered stance. And so, M, you have my support and the public's support, even if you get backlash from the group. One of the things that M mentioned was about how groups like hers remove bodily autonomy. So I want to get into that a little bit more. Having autonomy, having independence, having the right over something, over yourself, is something that is just not allowed in most cult groups. Your ownership of your body is unheard of. You are not to set any boundaries between the leadership or the other members and you, even if it means that then they can do things to your body that you would rather they did not and that they're not supposed to and outside the group would be illegal to do. And in fact, even in the group, it's illegal to do it. You just don't know it when you're raised in it, that there are laws about these things. And so when you are given this impression when you're a young girl that you are supposed to kiss men of any age on the lips or let them kiss you on the lips, and that if you don't, like in M's case, you will get hit and hit with a Bible just to make this more of an ugly story and more ironic. There is something so disempowering about that. You cannot have anything to hold up between you and another person who is hoping, trying, and succeeding in violating you. That is often why people don't realize when they come out of groups like this, why they might get involved in a relationship with someone who violates them as well. They might not know that they can say no, or they might be too afraid to because of what's happened in the past when they've said no. And it is something that also exists in society at large. And so for all of you listening out there who want to make sure that you are raising your children in a way that gives them bodily autonomy, that helps them know they have a say. And for you, if you're trying to heal from having had that stripped away and you're trying to stand in your own shoes and say, no, you can't touch me in that way, or no, I didn't give you permission to do that to me, and it's my body, so I'm the one who needs to give you permission, 
it's a good guideline. It's a good educational tool, I think, for everyone out there. When people talk to me now, they will say, you know, when I was little, I was told when I walked into a group of people that I was supposed to go hug somebody. It was a relative. It was a friend. And I was supposed to just let them kiss me on my face, on my mouth, uh, all over my face. And I know that there are times that people feel very awkward doing that. And other times they're perfectly fine with it. They also know that the person who they're hugging or the person who's kissing their face is a safe person. Even if a kid, as you've probably seen many times, will walk away and be wiping off their face because it's kind of gross and kind of wet and they didn't really want that to be happening, but they're not feeling violated per se. But when kids are punished for not letting their body be accessible to others on the terms of the other person, then you are setting kids up at times to be taken advantage of, to be made to feel that they can't put up defenses at any time. I think it's important if you say to a kid, go hug so-and-so or go give that person a kiss, and they say no, or they look down, they look awkward, you want to assess in that moment why it is that they don't want to. And it could be that they're just feeling awkward about it. And it could be they're not feeling ready to touch someone in that way. Or it could be that that person hasn't proven themselves to be a safe person to be touching or kissing. It could be that they've had a bad experience with that person who may have hugged them and they told them to stop and they wouldn't stop or gave them a second or third kiss when they only wanted one or they only agreed to one. Whenever there are these subtle boundary crossings, it can leave you feeling like that person is an unsafe person. And so listen to and observe the hesitation. Notice it and be careful not to label it right away as rude, not to make that person feel they're doing something wrong, not to tell them that they're hurting the other person's feelings. Oh, come on, you're going to hurt aunt so-and-so's feelings or grandma, whoever, or your cousin. Go, go, go. Go hug them, kiss them, or let them hug you and kiss you. You want to offer kids another way of connecting if clearly they are uncomfortable. And it also could be that they have a certain kind of wiring that makes it really highly uncomfortable for them to be touched or for them to be kissed. And so the whole social environment, because they might not be neurotypical, is already fraught with so much fear and being sensorily overwhelmed that now you're pushing them into doing something that is even more uncomfortable, which is potentially going to make them want to avoid social interactions even more. So take a moment to understand the scene, to notice, to watch if you're pushing your loved one or if you're pushing yourself to go interact with someone in a physical way. See what happens next. If that person handles it well, if they can intuit that all they really should do is pat you on the shoulder or on the back or shake your hand or give you a smile, because that's all that really needs to be done. You don't have to hug or kiss anyone. But notice once your child is, let's say, being hugged by someone, if that person hugs them so hard that they can't breathe, and if the child seems uncomfortable with it, and 
the adult's reaction, oftentimes this happens, the adult's reaction to a child's discomfort is to laugh and think it's funny and think it's cute. Then you have a situation where you're kind of having that person go farther into a mode of discomfort and also tying you, if you've encouraged that interaction without noticing the discomfort, without protecting the child from it, or at least having a conversation about it to understand it, you are now tied in with this moment of violation. And so unwittingly, and without any negative intention, you can be seen as someone who is not safe because you are not protecting your child. I don't want that to happen for anyone. And all it takes is some good observing and offering other alternatives to a relative, to a partner, to anyone who crosses those boundaries to say, you know what, I think my I am or my child or my loved one is a little more comfortable with just getting a hug and not a kiss or a little more comfortable with doing a little fist bump as opposed to doing a hug. And so you see that now with teachers who are sometimes welcoming their kids into classrooms that they'll offer them a hug if the child wants it. They'll offer them a kiss on the cheek if the child wants it. They'll offer them a little dance and they dance together and do kind of a fun move together or they offer them a chance to bow or whatever it is that helps them connect without crossing a boundary, without feeling violated. There are so many alternatives to this. I'm so sorry that M wasn't given a choice. One should always be given a choice. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash Indoctrination.